thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Azania Mosaka. Lines are always open on 011-883-0702. Oh, making his debut this afternoon is the one and only Dr. Chris Smith making his debut on the Azania Mosaka show. He's a medical doctor, a scientist at Cambridge University. And of course, he's the founder and the driving force behind the Naked Scientist. And he is, of course, going to be a featured guest on the show every single Monday. A man that I've been listening to for how many years has he been on in 702? I think from the very, very beginning since the Reedy Clubby days. Good afternoon, Chris. A pleasure to have you on the show. Do you want to know the answer to that question? We, we start, it's all about questions, this, isn't it? Do you know, it's 2008 we started, so we're into our 12th year. 11 years. Well, we're in our 12th uh-huh. year. We've been doing yeah. 11 and a half years so far. And um, my first foray to South Africa, 2007, it was, it was October time, 2007, and I came for a conference in Joburg. And yeah. uh, they put out this press release and said, the naked scientist is in town because we were doing this, this conference all about <laughs> science journalism. And, and someone at 702 picked it up. And said, "Whoa, come on, come on, Reedy's program." And so I got in this taxi mm-hmm. and I went down to Santon and I walked into Seven O Two, and uh, and it was very funny because uh, Reedy said, um, "Well, what do you do?" It was a bit like the Queen, who you know classically asks her subjects, "What do you do?" And and I said, "No, answer science questions, that kind of thing." And um, and she said, yeah. "Oh, well, what sorts of questions?" And I said. Anything. Why don't we have a go? You know, and so they just <laughs> threw the phone lines open and, and it went nuts. And we've been doing this ever since. And it's been wonderful. So thank you ever very much since. for having me. And the questions haven't stopped, which is why when the programming changed uh, on Eusebius' show, we thought, where do all those questions go? They need a home. And we found time, of course, on our Monday show. Well, thanks I'm for having glad me. glad that your schedule allowed as well. It's a pleasure, Chris. So we've got our lines flashing like crazy. Uh, people are ready to chat to you. Have you been following the 50th anniversary of Apollo? Yeah, it's Apollo been dramatic. We, we made a program for the Naked Scientists. We're, we're going to put it out as a podcast tomorrow. Because yeah. I was saying mm-hmm. to the guys in Cape Town um, last week, it's, it's stunning the era we're now in. Because what we have mm-hmm. got is all this rich media archive from which we can build and, and draw amazing um, quality materials and, and make documentaries and things and not just make up or think we think people were thinking this or we think they were actually doing this for this reason we've actually got the people on tape and you know the original footage of these things now and you can make really yeah. interesting programs that way but it's yeah. it's been uh, it's been extraordinary to unpick the story actually because i didn't know i realize now anything about this until we actually made the program and um, we talked to some of the people who made the electronics behind the, the whole mission mm-hmm. um, you know some of the mm-hmm. people are still alive and they were working with really primitive technology and you think you know we struggle exactly. to get online <laughs> today and these guys got to the moon with something that quite frankly had less processing power than a pocket calculator 
Exactly. We were talking to uh, Professor David Block earlier on, who's an astronomer, and I was saying to him, he asked me what I found fascinating about it. And I said to him, that's exactly it, what you just said now about the kind of rudimentary, really basic technology they use to get up there um, and back again, because these men did manage to return back to Earth. So uh, the, the fact that they achieved it is just unbelievable. But let's get to the phone lines. We've got uh, Corey from Pretoria. Um, good afternoon, Corey. Hello, uh, hello, Dr. Chris. Corey, well, hi. I just want to know, why can some dogs see themselves in the mirror and others ca- cannot? And why do some dogs see the images on the TV and other dogs don't? Wow. Hi, Corey. Okay. Well, I, I think that let, let's first of all look at the, the question of what can dogs see. Dogs actually mm-hmm. have pretty good vision. They're quite good at seeing at night because they also have um, a tapetum, tapetum lucidum, which is the bright carpet on the back of their eye, which actually has the effect of meaning they have two chances to see the light that comes into their eyes. But they have reasonably good vision and they can see a TV screen and they can see themselves in a mirror. Whether or not they recognise themselves as themselves is a different question. And the likelihood is that actually the dog in the mirror to them is a different dog. There are very few species that have what we dub a theory of mind, which is that if you see a picture of yourself, you know it's you. We know that primates very closely related to us, like chimpanzees, appear to be able to do this. We know that some marine mammals with big brains appear to be able to do this. We know that human infants can't do this, and it's not till they get a bit older that they realise that the person looking at them in the mirror is them. And scientists know this because they've done experiments. For instance, they've stuck a sticker on a baby's head where it couldn't see it except in the mirror. And the baby has reached up onto its own head when it's obviously a bit bit older, not when it's a newborn infant, and removed the sticker. So this tells us that at a certain age of development, this ability to recognise yourself kicks in. We don't think that dogs can do that. We don't think that other animals like cats can do that. There are very few animals that can. And it's to do with the developed front part of the brain called the prefrontal cortex. This is very big in us, in our close primate ancestors or relatives, and in summary mammals. And it's that part of the brain that encodes our perception of the world and how it relates to us and our position in it. And therefore, we need that in order to be able to recognise ourselves and also put ourselves in other people's shoes. And the the reason that we're able to do that is because we can see how we relate to other people and how our motions, our movements, our actions impact on them. But we don't think dogs can do that. So they can almost certainly see the reflection, but they don't see it as themselves. So they'll think that's another yeah, dog. So- and, and if they can't be bothered to pay attention to the other dog, they'll ignore it. Oh, right. So the ones that are reacting are reacting because they think it's another dog. Yes, that's right. That they think it's another the dog. image in the mirror. Yeah. Okay. And, and some dogs um, just can't go... be bothered, so they'll just ignore it. Yes. Let's go to uh, Tiago next. Good afternoon, Tiago. Hello. Um, hi, Chris. My name is Tiago. I am 12 years old. Welcome. I'm from Boxburg. Mm. So my question is, so I've heard that the sky is blue because it reflects off the color of the sea. So if that's true... Why is the sky blue in Boxburg? Because we are so far from the sea. Hello, Tiago. (laughs) This is an amazing question, and thank you very much for calling in. It is not true, though, that the sky is blue because the ocean is blue. That's a myth. The sky isn't blue at all. The sky is colourless. It just looks blue. And this is not a trick, actually. I'm not trying to 
play word games, the reason the sky looks blue is that only happens during the daytime because it's due to the effect of the sc- of the atmosphere on sunlight. If you look at the sky at night, the stars look white, don't they? If the sky was blue, the white starlight coming through would look blue, but it doesn't. The sky is black and the stars look white. So the sky only looks blue during the day. The reason for this, the sun produces all the colours of the rainbow, and we know that because when you see a rainbow, it's the white light coming from the sun being split up into all of the different colours. The light, when it reaches the Earth's atmosphere which is very rich in nitrogen and oxygen, sees that atmosphere and the very short wavelengths of light, so blue light and purple light, is about the same size. The waves of light are about the same size as the bonds between the oxygen and the nitrogen atoms in the atmosphere. This has the effect of scattering the blue light all over the sky, a bit like a bullet ricocheting around a room. So when you look up at the sky, your eye sees blue light rays coming from all directions so your brain says the only way i can make sense of that is if the whole sky is blue so your brain tells you the sky is blue because it sees this blue light coming from everywhere and it's not that the sky is blue it's that the atmosphere is bouncing blue light all over the place at you and your brain thinks the atmosphere is blue and then when we have a rainbow it's because that same light is coming through the raindrops right So when you have a rainbow, what's happening is you need a bright source of light. So you need a nice clear patch of sky so the sun can come into and illuminate a dark bit of sky with a lot of water in it. When the white light goes into raindrops, the raindrops act as mirrors and they refract and reflect the light back at you. When light goes from air into water, it bends and different colours of light bend by different amounts. So this has the effect of splitting up the white light rays into all the different colours because they've been bent by different amounts by the raindrop. The light goes into the raindrop, bounces off the inside back of the raindrop, which is like a mirror, comes back out at you. And because all of the different colours have been spread out and split up, you see a pattern of all the different colours on the sky because they've all come at you from a slightly different angle. And those are all the colours that together, when they arrive at your eye together, look white, but only when they arrive at your eye together. When they're split up into their separate colours, you see them. Mm, Lovely. Tiago, does that make sense? Yes, thank you very much. Thank you. And I hope he's going to go and tell everybody it's not actually blue (laughs) out on the playground. He's only 12. Let's go to Paul next in Sunning Hill. Hi, Paul. Hi, Agra. Hi. Hi. May I ask Chris a question? Yes, of course. Hi, Chris. Um, Chris, I'm not a a geneticist, um, but uh, it's something something that I've often wondered. Um, and because I'm not an adjet- a geneticist, my facts might not be actually, uh, might not be all that correct. But um, sexual reproduction, as I understand it, is necessary because it facilitates um, uh, genetic mixing. And, and as far as I understand it, this genetic mixing is necessary because it suppresses the, the propagation of um, uh, harmful mutations. Um, that's as far as I understand it. But then my question is, what about mitochondrial DNA? Because I understand that mitochondrial DNA doesn't participate in genetic mixing uh, during sexual reproduction. Hmm. Good question. First of all, why do we have sex? And the answer is that we have sex because, exactly as you suggest, it mixes up genes. If you take two individuals and they divide their genetic information in half 
and then they bring their separate halves together again to make a complete complement of genetic material in their offspring, but a unique combination of genetic material, then that offspring has the best bits potentially of both of its parents. And by creating this diversity in the gene pool, nature can do an experiment because what nature can do is it can try all these different genetic combinations in the environments in which they find themselves and the ones that do really well are more likely to be healthy, they're more likely to reproduce themselves and therefore more likely to pass those genes on into the next generation so you'll get more of those healthy genes and fewer of the unhealthy genes. The other side to this is there are animals and plants that don't have sex or that have another reproductive strategy, which is that they clone themselves. In other words, they just make a side shoot of themselves, or green fly also do this. They can produce another green fly, which is genetically identical to the parent. Now, this is a really good strategy under certain circumstances, because it means if you've got an environment that's really good to live in, then by having lots of yourself, you can exploit that environment really, really well. The downside of that is that if something comes into that environment where there's loads of you and you're all genetically identical and you have some kind of Achilles heel that this thing that's come in can exploit, then it can exploit not just one of you, but every single one of you really quickly. And this can lead to your demise. And we've seen this happen for real. In the 1850s in Ireland, there was a huge famine, the potato famine, which caused the deaths of millions of people who were all dependent for their survival on eating potatoes. A fungus or a fungus-like organism came in and because potatoes are clones of themselves, they're all genetically identical, this fungus wiped out all the potato plants, rotted them out, loads of people starved. We're seeing this happening again with bananas because bananas very very infrequently produce seeds. They reproduce by suckers coming up from the roots. So they're all clones. And we've seen one particular type of very, very sweet, nice banana called the Gros Michel has fallen victim to one particular fungal disease. So having sex is good and it leads to diversity. Mitochondrial DNA, you're quite right, in each of our cells you have these powerhouses called mitochondria. They are ancestrally bacteria, we think. And because bacteria have their own DNA, our mitochondria have their own DNA. The chief source of mitochondria in us is our mums. And I say the chief source because scientists found more recently that you do, under certain circumstances, get some mitochondria from your dad. But mostly they're from your mum, and therefore you only get them from one parent, and they are therefore susceptible to mitochondrial enzyme defect diseases and this is where there's a dna problem with the mitochondrion and because they're all the same you can end up with a situation where if a person's got a particular gene not working their mitochondrial dna their mitochondria don't work and this robs their cells of energy and these are devastating diseases luckily science can help paul satisfied with that partly yes partly I'm still just curious as to why the, the, the mitochondrial DNA doesn't suffer the same potential fate that, say, um, uh, um, potatoes do, who, who reproduce clonally. Well, Paul, they do. We've got those two systems. No, well, they, they do suffer the same fate, Paul, and this is why we have mitochondrial enzyme defect diseases. But mm-hmm. the population of mitochondria that you have in your cells is not just clonal. They're not just 100% all one type of mitochondria. There will be a mixed population, and those ones which are healthy tend to reproduce more. 
but you can end up concentrating a particular defect in a population and then you, you will have problems. But because the, the problems tend to be so catastrophic, they haven't propagated mm. through populations and we've selected for mitochondrial that tend to work very well. Ah, so selection has happened. Bongani is calling us from Randburg, Chris, with a question for you. Hello, Bongani. Uh, hi, Aza. How are you? Good, and you? I'm good. Hi, Chris. Hi. Um, I've got a question. Yes. I saw a spark on my tracksuit. Uh, yeah. It was at night. Uh, it's like a fire spark. And then minutes later, when I was touching my partner, I felt this electric shocking uh, feeling. Where does that come from? Well, what's happening here? This tracksuit probably contains synthetic fibres. And synthetic fibres, like nylons and things, are not good conductors of electricity. When you rub them either against themselves or against something else, excuse me, <clears throat> what they do is to transfer some charge, some electrons, or sometimes they rub off some particles of themselves onto another surface, taking some charge with it. And this leads to the accumulation of a charge on the object. And if you're then touching that object, you will then accumulate that accumulated charge. So you become charged. And if you aren't in a way positioned so you can earth yourself, so the charge can flow away to earth and balance things out, you stay charged up until you touch someone or something which is at a different charge to you. And then you discharge and electricity flows between the two of you to balance things out until you're roughly at the same potential. And that spark that you saw on the clothes was because when you move the clothes or rub the clothes and then you move the surfaces apart, because you're separating some charges on the two different surfaces, as you separate charges, because of the way capacitance works, you will increase the voltage between those two bits until it gets to the point where it's such a high voltage, it's higher than the uh, amount of voltage you need to cause the air to ionise and electricity flows and you get a spark. So that's what you did. You basically accumulated some charge on your clothing and that caused the spark that you saw. But also when you touch the clothing, you're accumulating charge on you and you're at a different potential to your partner. So when you touch them, zip, they got a shock. So, you know, that's what you call an electrifying bed experience. <laughs> So don't complain, Bogani. <laughs> Thank you for the call, Chris. Making everybody blush. Hi, Casper. Your colleague is from Bedford View. Yes, yes, I am. Thanks for taking my call. Um, so something that's been bothering me for quite some time is why is chlorophyll not uh, blamed for global warming? Chlorophyll. You know, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, photosynthesis is, is uh, what creates organic compounds from uh, inorganic through absorbing sunlight and keeping it here on this planet. And all fossil fuels is from there. But uh, when we plant trees, we think we, we're cooling the planet. But we're not. Uh, aren't we barking up the wrong tree? Hmm. Well, first of all, what, what do we right? mean by, by global warming? What we mean by global warming and climate change is the accumulation in the atmosphere of a net increase in carbon dioxide. And why this is a problem is that carbon dioxide absorbs heat and if the atmosphere absorbs heat where it wouldn't normally absorb heat more heat stays close to the planet than compared to previously when it would have gone back out into outer space therefore the earth warms a bit and if you warm the earth up a bit then you end up with higher temperatures more energy focused in the air in the atmosphere in the wet and therefore you have more intense storms and that kind of thing but also you get sea level rises etc so where does the CO2 come from? The CO2 comes from sources which were previously locked away forms of carbon, which have had their carbon liberated 
by burning them. So if we go to coal or oil or natural gas under the ground, this is in a form which, left alone, would stay there for millions of years and already has been there for millions of years. It's not carbon that's in the atmosphere. If we burn that and release it into the atmosphere, it's now carbon which is active in the atmosphere where it can cause the processes I outlined, which are global warming, climate change and so on. Now, where trees come into this, and there was a paper that came out a couple of weeks ago by researchers in America and in Switzerland, and they had done some modelling studies showing if we planted lots of trees, could we affect the outcome for climate change? And their suggestion was if we planted a billion hectares of forest, then we could restrict the rate at which the temperature was rising around the world to maybe one and a half degrees. Now, to put that in perspective, a billion hectares is a land area roughly the size of Australia, or in other words, about three quarters of the African continent. It's a huge amount of trees that we would have to plant. But why do trees work? Well, the answer is that when you plant lots of forests, those forests to make trees pull down carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and they turn the carbon dioxide into wood. Now, you might say, but that's only a temporary form of carbon being locked away. But as long as the forests are sustained, then you have locked away that amount of carbon from the atmosphere for as long as you keep the forests. And you don't just plant one tree, you plant millions. And so therefore you lock away the carbon again, albeit in a temporary way, but it's locked away. It's not circulating in the atmosphere. So that's why we think that uh, planting forests could help to mitigate the effects of climate change. Hmm. Well, um, we don't have uh, much time to check with Casper, but thank you for all of the explanations, Chris. And uh, we've popped the cherry. Here's to more. I'm looking forward to it. Thanks, everyone. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.